just thank you that we have this opportunity to come and worship you. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look through your, your word and help us to see what you would want us to see from all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Kings chapter 2. We're going to be starting at verse 13. We had Elijah uh, and Elisha going across the Jordan River, and Elisha, Elijah is taken in the fiery chariot that was separated between them, and he was taken. We had the sons of the prophets at all these different locations, or the school of the prophet, as it's called in other places. We're talking to him, telling him that this was going to happen. And Elijah asked Elisha, what, what is it that you would like from me? He goes, I want a double portion of your anointing, which is quite a, quite a request with all the things that Elijah had done. And Elijah's answer was, well, if you see me taken, then, then your request will be granted. And uh, he was able to see Elijah, or as close as he could see him, because it said the fiery chariot came between him and Elijah, and then Elijah was not seen anymore. So we always talk about the fiery, fern, uh, fiery, fern, yeah, fiery chariot taking Elijah, but literally when you read what it says, it came between them. So whether he was taken by it or not, I'm not going to argue the point, but it's not what the scripture says directly. Um, but he is going to get his, his request granted. So starting at verse 13. And he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell upon him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell, that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elijah went over. And when the sons of the prophets, which were to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. Okay, we're going to stop there for just a moment. Elijah is the discipler of Elisha. He's been everywhere with him. He's been learning from him. He watches him day and night and is always there with him. Uh, first thing I want to bring up is we need somebody that is our, our Elijah teaching us, but we also need to be Elijah to somebody else and teach them. And this is very important because Paul said that we were to find people that can make disciples. And it's important for us, who are we being discipled by, first off, and then also, who are we discipling? And the, this is true for any level of Christianity, because at, at any level, as long as you're learning, you know something more than somebody else out there, then you can be able to reach out and minister to them. And for many, it starts out with their families, uh, friends, neighbors. But if you don't have somebody that you are discipling, Ask God for them. Ask God for the person that you can help to disciple and help them grow. Because if all you ever do is get fed and never teach, it's not doing you a bit of good. We have to be able to take what we learn and apply it in our lives and, and help others learn. And it's very important for us. For me, for many years, it was my four kids. And as, I've, as they've grown older, they're still out there. They're still asking questions. They're still needing to be led a little bit. But most of them have come to the place now where they can be leaders and teach others just as much. Uh, 
two of my kids have all commented, have made the comment of they didn't realize how much they learned growing up in our house until they were with other groups. Uh, and uh, so we need to pour out what we learn to other people. And here we see Elijah picks up the mantle that was left behind from Elijah. And he walks back to the Jordan River. And remember, the, when they crossed over, Elijah struck the water with his, with his outer garment, his outer mantle. The water split. And now Elisha is coming back. And he took the mantle that fell on him and he smote the waters. And he struck them. And in, in the King James, it says, where is the God of Elijah? This would be more correctly uh, uh, brought out to be um, God, are you still are you still with me? All right. In other words, God, have you left? Elijah left. Have you left? Are you no longer here? And you know that's a question many people ask when a transition happens in a ministry or a leader gets drawn out. God, are you still in this ministry? Are you still in this activity? Because especially if the person's dynamic, standing out, and they seem to be the one that makes everything run. Now, over the years, I have seen it over and over. I've seen just this, where God says, I'm ready for the next, I'm ready for the next person, because it wasn't them, it was me. Sometimes the ministry will take some kind of sharp turn and, and lose people initially because they don't like change. People don't like change but sometimes change is what needs to happen because stagnation is kicked in. Uh, one of the things I know, learned about managers is managers will run a business to the level of their incompetency. Okay? And some of them are very competent, get way up there, but there's a level where they can't go beyond what they know without drawing other people in. Oftentimes in ministry that happens. People take it as far as they're able to handle it because they're starting to trust their own self rather than God. And if we trust God, we never run into this peak, but God says, listen to me and be willing to change. We too often in today's world get into programs. How, does this, how do we make this, this program work? And some, to a degree, these programs are okay. But we need to be careful that we don't get stuck in the program and walk away from what God <laughs> says. And this can be anything, evangelism, Bible studies, all kinds of different things can get stuck in a program. And what will end up happening, churches develop this really good program. God's working in it. God has put them. So what do they do? They package it up and sell it. And go, this is how you, this is how you do <laughs> whatever it is that they're advertising to do. And we've got to be careful not to get stuck in the program, but get stuck in God and what does God want. And this is very important. And here's Elijah coming back, Elisha coming back. And he says, basically, it says, where, where is the God of Elijah? But it, it really comes out more clearly, God, are you, still, are you still here? And all through the scriptures, we read that argument, you know, when people don't see God working. And they're going, God, where are you? You used to do all these great things. And even in the Bible, we see Gideon, you know, God comes to him and says, I'm going to, well, God, where have you been? Where, where's the God that we heard that sent the plagues on Egypt and split the Red Sea and did all these miraculous battles? 
and God says them right here. But we tend to be that same way oftentimes. God, where are you? Haven't seen you for a while. Uh, God, you used to do all these things in the Bible. Where, where are you? We, are, we need to understand that God is not standing there doing miraculous all the time. Now, miraculous will also be how you define it because just getting up in the morning is a miracle. Making it through the day is a miracle. But most of our life does get spent in just living, just going about our day-to-day business and watching God get us through it. Uh, the children of Israel, even though they were walking through the wilderness, every morning they got manna, and God miraculously gave them water. But beyond that, there wasn't a lot of miracles except here and there where they would do battles. We look at Abraham's life. Abraham had a couple of big miracles, but most of his life was spent just living. And we need to understand that most of our life is living, getting through the trials and growing from the trials so that when we get the next big thing in our life, we're ready for it. Because God is wanting us to grow. And so he sits down and says, okay, learn my word, learn my word, study, learn. Okay, now let's see if you're ready. And we get that great big trial, and then we go, okay, God, I really need you. Usually we don't pass it. (laughs) Because we are focused on what miraculous thing is God going to do? And God's saying, I'm doing a miracle every day. I'm teaching you. I'm growing you. And you keep failing the test. (laughs) So you're not ready for the next big thing. And God steps out to do the miraculous. Abraham was told, take your son Isaac and offer him on the mountain. Isaac was the child of promise. Isaac was probably around uh, 12 to 13 years old, they think. Maybe a little higher. Might have been as much as 20 years old. Abraham is way too old to have any more kids. At least he thinks so. He's going to have more later on anyway when he marries Keturah. But he's figuring nobody else. But God had said, this is the son of promise. And then God says, go offer him as a sacrifice. How hard that must have been, because Abraham knew God doesn't ask for human sacrifice. This is the son of promise. This is, this is the son who the promise that, that he's given me is going to be from. God, hard to, hard to uh, compute this information. We need to be very careful because we get ourselves in that same process. Living by faith is hard. Because living by faith is when God asks us to do something that makes no sense at all to us until after it's done. And we do things and we go, God, you know, we can't afford to do this or we can't do this. We don't have the right people to do this. You know, we come up with all kinds of reasons. And God says it's time to step out. And it's hard to step out. Elisha's taken a pretty bold step here. Okay, this is what I saw Elijah do. Let's see if God is still here. Smacks the water and says, God, basically, God, are you still here? Are you still with us or did you leave with, did you leave with Elijah? Because remember, he's only been the sidekick up until now. <laughs> he's, been, he's been the watcher. He's been learning. And the waters split just as it had for Elijah. And as we mentioned last week, this is now the third time that the River Jordan has split so somebody can walk across on dry land. 
First time was when the children of Israel crossed into the Promised Land, and now one just a couple hours earlier, and now this time. Uh, as far as I know, there was no other time in the Bible where the Jordan River is split into two. And he goes out, and the, and the prophets, the, the, the men that are in school to learn to be prophets, were watching. From Jericho, remember, when we, last week when we talked about them, they were on a hill watching as they crossed the river. And they must have been very patient because they stayed there and waited till he came back. And their statement is, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. They were looking because at this point, they're also wondering who is going to take over the schools. This happens when a pastor retires or dies or, or moves on. Everybody's always looking at who's going to take over. What's the next step? Is, is God still going to be faithful? The answer is yes, he's going to be faithful. And over the years, as I've watched God move people in and out of positions, it's amazing to watch how a ministry that has been going on for a long time, been real successful, that person leaves it for whatever reason. God puts in another person, and it still grows. May change a little bit of direction, but it still grows and develops. Oftentimes, God will replace people with more than one person. That's really fun when you somebody, you go, God, how can I ever lose that person? They are so important. And then he puts two people in their, in their place. And you can either get two workers doing the same ministry or you get, two new, you get a new ministry out of the deal. And it's wonderful to watch how God supplies his need. Because the thing we always remember is the ministry that we do is not ours, it's God's. And if God isn't going to take care of it, then we might not have been, should have been doing it. And this is one of the things I've said each time when we do our budgets, we look at the future, is are we going to continue doing what we have been doing? Is it, is it something that God still wants? Because the last thing I want to do is 20, 30 years from now, people going, well, you know, this, why are we doing this? Well, because we've been doing it for, for 20 years. We can't stop it now. I never want to hear that kind of a, a reason for doing something. You know, we do it because God is growing it and he's building a ministry or we don't do it. And if that's the case, then the person leading it is irrelevant because God will put another leader in that place and grow it. And we see here, Elisha now is going to be the head. And that's what they said. When, that's what they're saying. The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. They're saying, okay, we have our new, we have our new leader. It was kind of obvious, most likely, Elijah has been grooming Elisha to be his, be his successor. But here's their proof. He goes, they saw the same miracle that Elijah had done. And they go, okay, this is, this is it. We, we have our new leader. Verse 16, and they said unto him, the, the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, behold now, there, there be with your servants 50 strong men, let them go, we pray. Seek your master. Let's pre-adventure the spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him on some mountain or in some valley. And he said, you shall not send. And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. And they sent, therefore, 50 men, and they sought three days, but found him not. And when they came back again, for, for he tarried at Jericho, he said unto him, did not I say unto you, go not? This is kind of an interesting thing. They're out there saying, well, maybe the body's been cast away, you know, uh, maybe he dropped him off, maybe he's not dead. Okay, they're doing all these 
questions, okay? Uh, has, he really, has he really been taken? Is he, is he just been hurt? Has the spirit moved him away? Uh, and so they go, they say to Elijah, shall we, shall we go and, and see him? Elisha starts out saying, no, you're not going to go. He knows Elijah's gone, right? He knows it. He knows that what Elijah was saying was going to happen. He watched him be separated. But I think deep down, even beyond that, God had already spoken to him. He knew Elijah was no longer around. And his instinctive answer was, no, we're just, we're going to go, we're going to move forward. The old is past. And, but very interesting, they urged him until he was ashamed, which is not really a good definition. It was disconcerted. All right. They're just bugging him so much. You know, you know, we need to, and it might've been words like, are you just going to abandon him? What if he's, what if he's out there? He got knocked, you know, he got knocked away and now he's laying unconscious and he's not, you know, those kind of accusations. You're not, you just don't care. You know, you've been following him for these years and you don't care now that he's gone. All right. So there's all these attacks they're making on him. He gets very disconcerted and finally says, probably in just this type of tone, fine, go search. <laughs> all right. Uh, you know, you're going to keep bugging me about this. Go and search for him. And so they send the 50 men out and they, and they search for three days trying to find a body. Now, it's kind of interesting here because what were they going to do? Were they hoping they were going to find an injured body and bring him back and nurse him back to health? Were they going to hopefully find a body so that they could put it in a tomb and worship the tomb, which is more likely what they had planned on doing? When Moses died, he went up on the mountain and God took his body and buried it. For the, for the same exact reason. If the Jews had this tomb of Moses sitting somewhere in Israel, oh, it would be just like Muhammad. There'd be, there would be uh, all kinds of trips to this great site. You know, this is where the great prophet sleeps. Elisha was taken, Elijah was taken by God for very much the same reason. No, no special tombs, no special envoys to go visit the tomb of Elijah or no special envoys to visit the tomb of Moses. Why? Because God says, I am the one that's going to get the glory. He doesn't want us to pick up things because the, even if you remember the brazen serpent that was raised up in the wilderness, well, in Hezekiah's day, they were worshiping that. Okay? Well, it, it, it did all these miraculous things. Now we're going to worship it, and he destroyed it. All right? We as human beings tend to worship things. And this is one of the reasons I believe that there's no pictures of Jesus, no writings of Jesus, no, no, no creations of Jesus, because, man, can you imagine what would have happened to those things? You know, we'd have every Christian, probably every Christian, wanting to go see the actual writing of Jesus, the actual drawing of Jesus, the actual picture and God, in his wisdom, said, no, I'm not going to create anything while I'm a human being on this world that they can worship. Because he already knew that we were going to worship. It's human nature to worship. It's part of who we are. We are created to worship. Whether we're going to worship God or not is another story. Because we have a tendency to worship just about anything. 
And if, and if we're not focused on God, we will worship, we'll find something to worship. Everybody you know, even if they say they're an atheist, they worship something. They may worship themselves. They may worship what they can get done, what they do, what they can accomplish, but they're going to worship something. And we see this process, and I think that's why Elijah's body was taken, just so there would not be anything for them to worship. And so they, and then when they come back in verse 18, they came back, for he tarried at Jericho, and he said, did I not say to you not go? <laughs> Basically, I told you so. <laughs> Now, I told you not to go. I told you you didn't need to go. And you guys kept bugging me until, until I relented. Now, Elisha is still fairly young in his leadership. Otherwise, he would have never let them go in the first place. But they, they, harangued, they harangued him until he finally said, okay, all right, fine. You guys go out and waste your time. You know, basically, go out and waste your time and find nothing. I'll wait here until you're back. In one sense, he's teaching them a lesson. Listen, be willing to listen to the voice of God. Uh, and sometimes it's hard. You know, God is the same way with us. He lets us learn things the hard way because that's the way we learn the best, I guess. It's the most personal. When I go out and mess up and, and make, a, make a mess out of everything, and then God can come in and say, all right, now let's fix up your mess. Luckily, God doesn't do what Elisha did. He doesn't say, I told you so. You know, Maybe God does. Maybe. I, I don't know. I've never really heard it, but he, he lovingly brings us back. But I can almost picture God shaking his head and going, why do they have to keep learning the hard way? Why, why, do they, why aren't they listening to what I say? But for human beings, we do have this tendency that if we don't learn the hard way, we really don't learn. Uh, I li I'd liked in my lifetime to try to learn from other mis mistakes, but you know, I still go out and make the same mistakes. Uh, I, I'm just like everybody else. Sometimes I do learn from other people's mistakes and go, I don't think I want to do that one. That, that, that was a really hard lesson. But usually we have to learn the hard way, and it, and it helps stick it in our mind. I got hurt. It wasn't, it wasn't theoretically they got hurt, but wow, I really hurt myself when I did this. I'm not, I'm not going to do it again. And so I think um, part of that was Elisha saying, okay, you guys go out, waste, waste, waste your three days. <laughs> And then you're going to come back and find out that you wasted your you know, time because you didn't listen to me. And in one sense, he's flexing the authority because they recognized him. He's, he's going to be the authority. He's taking over the school. He's taking over the leadership. They're pushing back against the leader. And he finally says, okay, just go. And they're going to come back and say, okay, he really, he did hear from God. So this is actually a second uh, anointing of him in his position. The first one, they saw him split the water. Then he spoke and said, don't go, you're wasting, you know, he's gone. Then they come back and he's going, I told you so. You're not listening. You're not listening to authority. And this is something that is very important for us, learning to listen and obey authorities. And this is where things are going to get very interesting for us, possibly in the next, in the next four years. We could very well have authority that we're going to have a hard time listening to. And we're going to have to decide when are we going to be obedient because they're the authority or there are going to be certain places where they cross the line. And I can almost think there will be some places they cross the line. But this is going to happen. These things will happen. They're going to happen. We just need to be ready 
There will be things that we'll say, no, this is not godly. We cannot, we cannot do this. But as I've always said from, from before, just because it's ungodly and we're not going to obey because we're going to obey God rather than man does not mean that we're not going to be punished. God still put a government in place and that government has the right to implement their, their punishment for the disobedience, whether we like it or not. The, the apostles did not go to, the, go to the people beating them and say, no, we're obeying God, you can't beat us. They're going, well, we disobeyed the government, we did it for God, and they willingly took the punishments, the beatings that came along with it. So we need to be ready. It, it, there will be times when it is going to be right to, to be disobedient, but we also need to be ready for what the consequences are for that disobedience. We don't ever go into it thinking, well, I'm obeying God, so nothing's going to happen. That is not what history tells us. It's not what God tells us. So we, if we decide to be disobedient to the government, then we take the consequences for that disobedience. Uh, he's saying, basically, I told you so. You, waste, you wasted three days that you could have been learning. Maybe, maybe he's going, you learned a good lesson, now, but you really took a long time learning a lesson you didn't need to learn. Verse 19. And the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, I pray you, the situation in this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is not, and the ground barren. And he said, Bring me a new cruise, and put salt therein. And they brought it to him, and he went forth into the springs of water, and cast the salt in there, and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from hence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elisha. So something had polluted the well for this city, and it's someplace probably in Jericho area because it's, he has, it says, hasn't said this. And they go, hey, look at this. The city is beautiful, but there's no water. <laughs> and without water, a city's not going to stay beautiful very, very long. They couldn't, and apparently whatever was polluting this water was also so bad that the plants couldn't be using on it. Okay, it's not like the gray water, you know, gray water that's, you know, we're not going to drink, but it's still good for, you know, putting on our ground. Whatever was in this well had polluted it to the point where it was totally useless, which meant that the city was, you know, it's kind of interesting. See, see, see the situation. The city is pleasant, but they're dying in the city and they're going to have to move and leave the city is what they're basically saying. All right. There's no water. You know, the water's been polluted. And Elisha just goes, bring me a cruise or a container, a bowl, with water, and uh, uh, bring me a, 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 a bowl and put salt in it. And he throws the salt in the water. Now, yes, salt would probably have helped a small amount of water, <laughs> But there's no way one bowl of salt is going to fix an entire well. <laughs> this is a miracle. I mean, yes, he could have added the salt to a, to a gallon, couple gallons of water and probably purified it because salt will purify. But doing it to the entire well, to fix the whole well, this is a miracle of God. And God took this miracle and healed the water. Many places in the Bible, God has healed water. Moses went to the, 
to the, to the uh, springs of Mura, or complaining, and he threw in a tree, it says, and it was healed. Here, salt is poured in. Both of these are pictures of Christ. When Moses puts a tree into the water, it's a picture of the cross being applied to the bitterness, and then sweet water was able to come out. Jesus said, we are the salt of the world so that we can bring in help. So he uses the salt to purify the water. And water is life. And we, we understand that water is life. Not so much in our, in our country here because water is so abundant. We really don't understand the preciousness of water in America. Uh, we got so much water, you know, we... We take showers, we, we, we cook with it, we clean with it, we waste it, you know, we waste lots of water. There are places in the world where you don't, you are so careful with water, you don't waste any of it, you barely drink it, you know, drink it in some places because when you had to walk six miles to go get a couple of gallons of water and come back six miles, water is precious. Uh, and, it, you know, in much of the world, we in America, we take our shower every day whether we think we need it or not. Most of the world, you might take a bath or a shower once a week or once a month or less because water is so much of a precious commodity. In much of the world, you cannot drink the water out of a tap unless you want to get sick. And that's one of the things they warn you when you go overseas is don't drink the water. Uh, I was actually talking to, talking to somebody and they, they took that warning and they got sick anyway because they put ice in all of their soda. Uh, by the way, ice was water. <laughs> you know, the, they, they got the ice from the same water you weren't supposed to drink. <laughs> and yet for us, Jesus says he's the living water. He comes into us and water flows out of us to refresh people to help them live. And it's very important for us to understand God is the one that gives us this water in us. He is the living water. He is the, he is the vine. All the different things that he says he is. He gives us life. And when we have life, we show that life to others and we have the availability of giving that life to others sharing the gospel message. And it's very important for us to share the gospel message because without it, people are going to go to hell. And we need to be able to come in and share that message. It's been very popular in America, especially to decide, well, I'm going to have lifestyle evangelism. I'm going to live God so, so clearly in front of people that they're going to get saved. Well, they might get questions, and it's a good idea to, to live, the, live a good life so that people will ask questions. But at some point in evangelism, I have to open my mouth and give the gospel message. And the problem is, people don't like the gospel message because the first part of the gospel message is, you're going to hell. No matter how good you think you are, you're going to go to hell without Jesus Christ, and they don't like to have that message. And it's hard. It's hard to deliver that message in a loving attitude that doesn't turn somebody off. Because too many people go, you're headed to hell. And it's almost like they're looking forward to you going to hell. And unfortunately, a lot of new Christians start that way with their family. 
You know, they're, they're generally concerned with it for their family, but they, you know, you're headed to hell. And they're like, what? <laughs> you know, and they just don't know how to deliver it with a loving comment. We need to learn to be loving of somebody. You know, though, I am just so concerned because your lifestyle is going to take you to hell. And the part of the gospel is to get them lost. They have to understand that they are lost and they deserve hell. Without that understanding, nobody's going to get saved. You know, and this is the process of anything that you're trying to change in your life. You have to realize that you've got a problem and it's, and it's leading you down the wrong path before you can correct it. And salvation is that first big one. You're going the wrong way. And really make them understand that even if, they, even if they're a pretty good person, they're not going the right, the right direction because hell is going to be filled with good people. You know, and people who are going to look around and say, how did I get here? What did I ever do to deserve this? Now, at the white throne ju judgment, God will show them that they deserve what they got. But they're going to initially think, I don't deserve this. This isn't right. I was a, I was a good person. You know, and God says, you know, all your, all your righteousness is filthy rags. He says, you're not perfect. Even when we do something good, it's tainted. Many times it's tainted even for us Christians. You know, I'm going to do these things and look, God's going to reward me for this. Or, hey, everybody in the church knows me. I've got this position and everybody knows who I am. You know, we have all these problems that can easily get into our good works and turn them totally wrong. This is why it's very much a need to stay in the spirit and know that God is what's there because everything is by grace. We can do nothing except by God's grace. How do we get healing? By God's grace. And the more we can understand that everything we do is by grace, nothing I do, nothing that I, that I try in my strength is going to bring life. When it's done in God's power, it brings life. It brings growth. Elisha brings life back to this city. They're not going to have to move out. And he says, this is no longer going to bring death. It's no longer going to be barren. You can now use this water. And moves, moves on. Verse 23. And when he had went from thence to Bethel, as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came, out, uh, came forth two she-bears out of the woods and tore 42 children of them. And he went from thence to Mount Carmel, and from thence he returned to Samaria. All right. He's on a trip from Jericho to Bethel. And out comes a bunch of children, at least 42 of them, probably more than 42 of them, because 42 of them are going to die. This word for children, <laughs> we're going to be a little more difficult on this one because the word for children can be anywhere up to a young man. All right? So I do not believe these were little, little children. These were teenagers or young men. Basically, they were coming in and insulting the leader and being very disrespectful to him. All right? 
he had just made a, I'm going to assume that they came from Jericho. He had just healed the water and they're going to come out and attack him. The amazing thing about this is when we as Christians see God working in our life and, and people notice, oftentimes they attack. One of the things that we can know is, as a Christian, if we are walking along as in, in Christ and we are not suffering any kind of persecution, any kind of attack, we need to look at our life and say, what am I doing wrong? Now, the American Christianity says, well, if you're not going through any attacks, you're, 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 you're right on with God. But Jesus said, they hated me, they will hate you. Satan will attack any work of God that's going on. Now, he'll give us periods of respite, but for the most part, he's going to keep an attack on all the time because he wants to wear us out, if he possibly can. And this is important. Every time we step out for God, and you think you're, you, you, you feel that you're called by God, and you step out, and all of a sudden, nothing works the way you wanted it to work. Nothing is happening the way you wanted it to work. Now, you are getting attacked. Your family's falling apart. Your, your, your cars are falling apart. You're, you lose your job and you're going, God, did I, what did I do wrong? Nothing, most likely. You might want to take a look and say, God, did I really hear you? But don't fall into this because Satan has stopped so many people from doing work with these attacks. And... One of the things I have learned over the years, if I'm not having some form of attack, there's probably something wrong, and I need to look and say, God, what if, where have I gotten out of, out of sync? When I'm getting attacked, I'm going, okay, God, I'm, I must be right on your path because Satan doesn't like where I'm, where I'm going. Again, we want to look and say, God, have I messed up? Am I, am I in sin? But just be aware that when you're under attack and you know that you're following God and you're stepping out, it's Satan trying to stop God's work. And it's been said over and over, and I agree with it. I heard it long ago. If you're not under attack, you're not doing what God wants you to do. Because Satan will sit back. If you're not, if you're not serving God, he'll just sit back and say, okay, uh, I'll let you. I'll let you. I, I lost you. You're going to heaven. You know, I can't, I can't get you, but you're not, you're not hurting the, the kingdom of hell and helping the kingdom of heaven. When we start helping the kingdom of heaven and hurting the kingdom of hell... Satan attacks. He does not like us reaching the lost. He does not re like us helping people grow in Christ. He does not want to see the church grow. He does not want to see Christians grow. So as we're growing, he's going to come against us and the human nature will say, wow, you know, even if they recognize that they're under attack because they're growing, they're going, well, maybe this isn't worth it. I'm just going to sit back and not do anything because I don't want to, I don't want to go through this. But again, if we're focused on God and the attacks actually fall on him if, we're, if we have the right attitude, if we are in Christ, all the attacks of Satan fall on Christ and Christ has very heavy, large shoulders and can handle the attacks. And we just get carried right through the, right through the battlefield. The more we feel it, the more we're paying attention to something other than God. Many times when I'm under attack, I don't even notice it at the time because my eyes are focused on God. And then I kind of get through it and go, wow, God, uh, there was a lot going on. A lot of stuff happening in my life. But where is our focus? Are we focused on God? When he says do something, is our focus on him? Are we looking at him? 
Elisha has already done a whole series of miracles in just a few chapters, a few, a few verses of this chapter. He split the water. He's basically said, I told you so. Now he's healed, healed the water. And these, I'm going to call them men, for a better word, okay? These, the, the word children here is really not, it can be, it's translated lads, youth, young men in other places. So I believe these are guys out of the city just looking to cause trouble. You know, a gang of, gang of men causing trouble. And we, you know, gangs are not new. They've always been around. They've always been in existence. But 42 young men out of a city, at least, is a pretty big number of young men. Or kids, part of the kids, you know, who knows? But these is still, cities in those days were not the large cities that we're used to. So to have 42 of them that die, and, that's, and it didn't say all of them died, it just said 42 of them died. They come out and they're mocking him. Apparently, Elisha is bald. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why they would call him bald if he wasn't bald, but you know. And they're basically saying, Go up, get out of, get out of town. Get, a get out of town, you bald one. Get out of town, you bald one. Uh, and Elijah and Elisha are pretty strong-willed people, I guess. Elijah, Elijah, remember, calls down fire upon the soldiers that were called out to arrest him. Here, Elisha doesn't necessarily call out fire, but he says he curses them. And that's a pretty big deal to be cursed is a big deal. He curses these children that are getting under his skin. I almost see a, a pattern on, on him that he is a little thin-skinned at this moment. He's able to be convinced by the sons of the prophets that, you know, even though you know that he's dead, let's go out and search for him. Now these kids get under, get under his skin by calling him names. Now, he's not remembering back when David was chased out of Jerusalem and Shimei was throwing rocks at him and, and calling him names and making fun of him. And if you remember, the general wanted to go kill him. He says, let me go kill him. And David says, no, just this may be God's will and we may, maybe I deserve this. Elisha is not having that attitude. <laughs> he's not having that attitude. He's going, I don't deserve this. I'm not going to put up with it. He curses them. And out of the trees come two female bears and kill 42 of them. We don't know how many of them are out there, but 42 people lost their lives because they dared to attack God's man of authority. And God's man of authority did not call grace on them and mercy for them. He called down the curse that they deserved. This is important for us to understand because David said when his men tried to get him to kill Saul, he said, I will not touch God's anointed. Even though God had abandoned him, he said, I am not going to touch the one that God has picked. When the Kor uh, and, and those men came against Moses and Aaron, they were touching what God had said is happening to go. And their attitude was, well, who are you guys to be authority? God, God uses us as well. And if you remember what happened to them, the ground opened up and swallowed them so that they were taken and their families. All right? And this is the sad thing about it. When people are judged, oftentimes it is their family that gets punished as well.
at the very least, the, these 42 people, their family just lost kids and, and their children. All because they dared to attack God's anointed man. And this is something that's very important for us to understand. And people have asked me, because I used to, this was my, this was my sermon a lot on Touch Not God's Anointed when I was circuit, circuiting to cover for pastors that were gone. And I'm going, and people go, well, you just said we shouldn't be touching them. What, what about if they're wrong? You don't think God can discipline them? God can discipline them a whole lot better than you can. You know, and this is something that is very important for us to understand. If God has put somebody in place, we're to honor that position. This is where we come down to our presidents and our, and our leaders of our country. God put them in place. Our job is to give them honor and respect and obedience. And this is one of the things I heard uh, when masks were first mandated in our area and I was getting so irritated about having to wear a mask that I didn't believe in. Uh, Tony Evans was talking about don't make an idol out of your freedom. Okay? And he, it hit me right between the eyes because that's what I was saying. My freedom is more important than what I was told by the government, which doesn't, there's no verse in the Bible that says you shall not wear a mask. So, but I had made, I had literally made an idol out of my freedom, my right not to wear a mask, even though the government had said, or the, the governing agencies had said, wear a mask. So since then, when I'm in a place where I must wear a mask, I'll wear my mask. Still not happy about it, but I'm, I'm obeying the rule to wear the mask. All right. Now, if there comes down a rule saying you cannot go to church, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother ball game because God says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and we need the body of Christ to grow. At that point, I'm going to say, no, I cannot obey that rule and take whatever comes my way because of disobeying that rule. So we need to be able to look and say, we're told something, we honor that if, it, if there's no biblical principle to not, to, that's being violated. Uh, because we can take good things and make idols out of them. We could take the Bible and make an idol out of it if we're not careful. This is God's word. It gives us the way of living, but we could actually make an idol of the Bible. I know people that will not do anything to their Bible because it, it is sacred. Not the words in it, not what it teaches, but it, the pieces of paper are sacred. All right? And I kind of understand where they're going from. And I saw this one time when I went to a synagogue and I watched them take the scrolls out of their cab. They unlocked the cabinet book and they paraded it around and everybody's reaching out and touching it. It was, it was very interesting to see, but very heartbreaking to see at the same time because the attitude was the actual, you know, what it appeared to be was that the actual scroll was what they were worshiping, not the words of the scroll. And we can get this way with everything. Come to church. Why do I come to church? Well, I can meet everybody and I'm having a good time and God's there and, you know, and I, instead of, and, well, let's take the God part out, <laughs> you know, because if God's there, there's a good reason to be there. Uh, but, you know, I'm having a good time with people. I like singing. I, uh, the teaching's pretty good or, or at least adequate. And I lift up the church service and not God. 
He has to be the center of all that we do. We cannot raise up any other idols against him, even things that might be good that can be raised up as idols. These children attacked, or young people, attacked Elisha. He curses them. You know, he's the type of man you didn't want to get on the wrong side of. The same thing with Elijah. You didn't want to be on the wrong side of Elijah because he, people died. People died when they, when they got on the wrong side of these guys. And after these children died, doesn't say he buried them, doesn't say anything about this. He just says 42 children died, and he continues his trip. All right? He just walks on. You know, almost cold, you know, 42 people have descended most likely into hell because of their attitudes, and he just continues on without a second thought. Elijah, just a few chapters ago, ended up killing 100 soldiers just doing their job for the king. Now, their leaders were a little arrogant in the way they approached him, but 100 men died just being obedient to the king. Actually, 102 when you count the officers. And that kind of bothers me on one side. (laughs) To not have any care for these people that entered into hell kind of bothers me, but that is who he, that's who he was. We need to be a little more compassionate as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> calling down God's punishment. David did it a lot. I mean, it is done by very various people. It is not for me. I know that God's going to take care of them one way or the other. My, my prayer for most people is, God, give them grace. Give them mercy. Because I don't want to see them end up in hell. I don't want to see anybody up in hell. Hell is so awful a place that I don't want to see anybody go there. I don't hate anybody enough to want to see them go to hell. Because if I really want that to happen to them, then I really have to look at the fact of what do I deserve? And that's my attitude toward it. This person, yeah, this person's been mean to me, nasty, downright aggressive. But even in that, I don't want to see them go to hell. Uh, you know, I suffer from gout pains. I don't want to see anybody suffer from gout pains. I don't want to, you know, I wouldn't even ask for that to be sent to people, you know, much less the idea of hell. If we really get a vision of what hell is and how awful it is, it'll give us a desire to see God give mercy and love and grace. Now, I have seen people that have been attacked by God for attacking other people. Precatory is calling a curse down. Well, when you're asking God to do bad things to people, I think it's not a good thing. But there's lots of people in the Bible who did it. David did lots of precatory prayers. Uh, Other people did lots of precatory prayers. You know, Elijah and Elisha are doing precatory prayers. Is there a time for it? I suppose, but I'm going to live under the idea that I want grace and mercy to fall on them more than I want to see judgment fall on them. Yeah, and that's my attitude toward it because God has given me so much grace and mercy. I am not calling down curses on people. I go, God, give them, give them mercy. Now, the other side of me knows that God will do what it takes to bring them to him. Sometimes that hard stuff is what needs to be done for somebody to come to Christ. I really don't pray at all for either any direction for him except God, be merciful. Be merciful. 
because I really truly want to see God's mercy, even if they're attacking me, because I kind of agree with, who am I to be that important? You know, they're attacking me, yes, I've, I've got a family, I'm a pastor, and these different things, but it's not that big a deal because my God is able to defend me. If he decides that I need to defend it, he is going to defend me. If he decides that they need, that they can continue going forward, all right, God, you know, you know what you're setting them up for. Because oftentimes God's let somebody get to where they think they're going to be blessed to find out that it doesn't bless them so that they can now kick the stool out from under them because they already found out. Because if you get kicked out too soon, well, you know, I never did get to the top of the company. If I had just made it to the top of the company, everything would have been good. So God says, fine, we'll let you get to the top of the company. You're going to find out that it's not good on top of the company. Now I can kick the stool out from underneath you and you're not going to go with if only. If only I hadn't broken my leg and not been able to go pro, you know, if only, you know, and God says, no, we're going to, sometimes he says, I'm going to let you get the success that you think you wanted just to show you that that's not all that it was cracked up to be. And then he brings us down to the bottom and he leaves these guys behind. He goes to Mount, Mount Carmel, goes to Bethel, goes to Mount Carmel, and then he goes back to Samaria. He's going on a walking tour. <laughs> Uh, just, a, just a short one, since I was covering hundreds of miles <laughs> to, to go from Jericho to Bethel to Carmel back to Samaria. I will not say the precatory prayers are totally, totally bad because, like I say, I can look on, we can find scriptures all over the place where precatory prayers were made. I just don't fit, think they fit us as Christians with the idea of grace and mercy. Uh, but as was said, Paul said, reward them, reward them according to their, to their doings. So uh, that's a precatory prayer because Paul wasn't saying, God, I hope you give them riches and, and fame. He was saying, take care of, you know, basically go get them. He was being sarcastic. He was being sarcastic. God reward them by what they deserve. So he was calling down a precatory prayer. So I'm not going to say it's, when I say this, it's just not right for me. I cannot pray a precatory prayer because of my attitude toward mercy and grace. If God hasn't included you in that, in that description, fine. It's going to be between you and God. Now just be aware that if you're calling down precatory prayers on people that God doesn't want it called on, he's now going to be saying, what are you trying to do? And I don't want to try that. I don't want to play that game because I want to see people get mercy. I want, I want as much mercy of God's mercy and grace as I can get, so I try to give mercy and grace. Uh, and, and granted, I understand there are people that deserve great punishment, but I have great confidence. It doesn't matter if I call for mercy and God wants to give them punishment, he's going to give them punishment. And he's going to use whatever it means to draw them to him. And if that means he gives them things that I don't think they deserve to show them that it's not going to be the answer, or he kicks the chair out from under them and put, kicks them down to the, to the gutter to bring them, He's going to do what it takes to bring them to him. And the, one, the other reason I don't want to see precatory prayers is because so often it affects families. You call down a precatory prayer on a, on a father and a husband, his wife and his children suffer if God answers that prayer. That's why I wasn't very happy when this guy lost everything. Because he lost his business, he lost his wife, he lost two of his kids to death. I know another man who attacked another pastor 
And the head deacon and I went to him and said, you've got to stop this. He doesn't deserve it, and you don't have any biblical authority to do this. He ended up getting cancer. His wife divorced him, and two of his kids died also. You know, this is a serious thing. When God moves against people, it's not just that person who suffers. Korah and and them died, and their families were taken and swallowed in the ground. Achan took some gold and some clothes, and he and his entire family were killed. You know, this is something that is very serious and why I take precatory prayer seriously. Because it's not just the person that's going to be hurt. Even if they're a single person, their mother at least is going to care that they got hurt. You know, there's probably somebody in their life that's going to care that they're suffering. So we want to be very careful on this because if I don't want to suffer, I don't want to I don't want to be calling down curses on other people because I'm not, that, I'm not that perfect. I don't deserve anything but curses myself. Yeah, maybe there's a few good things about me somewhere, but I don't deserve good from God. I deserve the, the curses as well. So I want to be very careful that I want to pray, God, you know, almost where Paul goes, you know, God, do what it takes to bring them to you. And that's about as close to a precatory prayer as I'm going to come. Do what it takes to bring them to you. Huh? Your decision. Do you need to bless them to bring them to you, or do you need to bring them down to, their, down to the gutter to, to, to turn to you? But that's what the prayer God wants. You know, do to them as you need to do to them. These people that I know that have had these sufferings, it's what God needed to do to get their attention because they weren't listening. And they weren't listening to anything. So God did what he had to do. Now, in both cases, I don't know if they ever repented. I don't know if they ever repented. But that was what God, all of the book of Revelation, when God brings judgment after judgment after judgment upon the world, all the purpose of it is not to be punishing the world. Yes, it is partially that, but it is to draw people to him. You know, and God will do what it takes to draw people to him. Same thing he does with us. If we're not listening, sometimes he puts us through some hard things to say, would you please listen and do what I'm I'm asking you to do? Or at least allows bad to happen to us. And when he allows that to happen, he kind of withdraws so that it's not him taking the beating, it's us. Because we're not in Christ in the first place. (laughs) And he says, okay, you're not in Christ, you get to take this punishment. You get to take all this hard headaches and and pain in the neck and have to deal with it. When we're in Christ, we walk through the storm without noticing the storm. When we're outside of Christ, we get beat by, by a feather and, and feel like we're being totally beat. When we're in Christ, we're being hit with rocks and stones and arrows, and, you know, or Christ is being hit by all that, and we're not even noticing it, and we don't feel like we're in a storm. But when we're outside of Christ... We get feathers and and dust against us and we feel like we're being abused. And you really do look at it that way and you'll get past it and you look back and go, that was what was messing me up? That is what was knocking me all about? And and when you're walking for Christ, you look back and go, wow, that was a pretty big storm we just walked through, God. How did we do that? And Jesus is saying, because I took it. I'm God and I took it and it wasn't... It, it was just a little dust to me. It would, have, it would have annihilated you, but it was just a little bit of dust and feathers to me. And if we were out in the dust and feathers, we'd have been knocked all over the place. 
And this has been true in my life. Usually when I look back at things, when I'm out of God's will, I'm being knocked about by stupid little things that normally would not bother me or not seem to be big. And I'm getting knocked off my feet and, and everything. So where is our focus? What are we going to do? Where are we going on? And, and I would say, I'm not going to say precatory prayers are wrong. I'm just going to say be very careful with them. Uh, because you might just get what you ask for some somebody else coming upon you as well. You know, uh, the, the measure you judge somebody else on, you, you'll be judged. You, you get the judgment back yeah, upon you. Like, God, they don't deserve mercy. Don't give them mercy. And God says, fine, you don't get mercy either. Yeah. Lord, thank you for this day. Lord, help us to learn to love people more and deeper. Help us to be more forgiving. And, and, and Lord, we just ask you to anoint each one of us so that we see your power working in our lives and that others will see it and be drawn to you by the life that we live and give us the words to speak to them as necessary. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.